0: The Old Pilots Plane Tales, Wooden Wonders and Aluminium Overcast, Part Two. This is the second part of a story about two aircraft which fought in the Second World War and which carried a very similar bomb load. However, one was machined from metal, bristled with defensive armament, and carried a crew of ten, whilst the other was made of wood and canvas built by piano makers, and carried a crew of two. Last week, we talked about the redoubtable B-17 Flying Fortress, its strength, firepower, and the bravery of its crews. Across the Atlantic in war-torn Britain, Geoffrey de Havilland was taking a rather different approach to designing a bomber. It was back in 1936 that the Air Ministry issued a specification for a bomber, and like Boeing's B-17 design, many aviation firms entered heavyweights with multiple defensive turrets. In stark contrast, George Volkert of Handley Page put forward the concept of a fast, unarmed bomber whose top speed would exceed that of the Spitfire. De Havilland agreed with Volkert and with his experience of building innovative high-speed aircraft, such as the DH-88 Comet Racer, he pushed for the acceptance of a high-speed design. He settled on an aircraft that would be aerodynamically clean, modern, and powered by two Merlins, and would be faster than any foreseeable enemy fighter aircraft. Its speed meant that it could dispense with heavy armor, and defensive armament, as well as simplifying production. Without a defensive capability, the crew would be kept down to a mere two, the pilot and a navigator. At the time, it seemed such a foreign concept, a bomber with no guns. After all, this was the era of the flying fortress, of four-engine aluminium overcasts carrying tons of machine guns, ammunition, ammo cans, and belts and complex turret units, adding the weight of the gunners themselves, dressed in heavy heated gear, helmets and flak jackets, sucking oxygen from tanks, and this could add up to one-sixth of a heavy bomber's empty weight." three extra tons in the case of the B-17, plus the drag of blisters and turrets, gun barrels poking into the slipstream and wide-open waste windows. De Havilland's design seemed too radical for the Ministry, but he found a supporter in Air Marshal Freeman, and although the AOCNC would not initially accept an unarmed bomber, a photo reconnaissance version was ordered the Mosquito was about to spring to life when the design team were denied the materials they needed and work on the prototype stopped. It wasn't until the end of the Battle of Britain that E0234 rolled out. In trials, it easily outpaced a Spitfire, and when it was demonstrated to a group of dignitaries, U.S. General Arnold recalled, The first time I saw it, I was impressed by its performance. The Mosquito was, by the standards of the time, an extremely well-streamlined aeroplane, and it was highly regarded, highly respected. The wooden wonder, the timber terror, the loping lumber yard was to become one of the most exciting, flexible, and well-known aircraft of its era. But why was it made out of wood? It wasn't just that spruce, birch plywood, and Ecuadorian balsa weren't strategic materials and were therefore in plentiful supply. Furniture factories, cabinet makers, luxury auto coach builders, and piano makers could quickly be turned into subcontractors. Also, wood, particularly when covered with a thin layer of doped fabric, made a remarkably smooth, low-drag surface free of rivets and seams. Wood's chief advantage was that it was easy to work with and was a material that craftspeople had been shaping for millennia. Components were also made as composites, which made them both light and remarkably strong. The bomber version had a maximum speed of over 360 knots, a ceiling of 37,000 feet, and it carried a bomb load of 4,000 pounds. However, this was not the only version to be built. The Mosquito became a long-range photo recce aircraft, both a day and night fighter, an anti-submarine hunter, a mine layer, a high-speed VIP transport and courier, a torpedo bomber, a trainer, and several special mission types were created. The mosquito relied as much on altitude as pure speed, and if they were bounced from above, their saving grace lay in putting the nose down, maneuvering and trusting that there were clouds to escape into. Fortunately, there were very few German fighters, one being the jet-powered Me 262, that could outrun them. Such was the level of annoyance that the Mosquito caused the German high command, a bounty was put on the aircraft, and any fighter pilot who shot one down was allowed to claim two kills. The Mosquito wasn't a simple aircraft to fly. It was compared with a thoroughbred racehorse, which needed skilled handling. With its high power-to-weight ratio and high wing loading, it was a handful for an inexperienced pilot. Its VMC speed, the speed it could be kept under control with rudder when on only one engine, was an eye-watering 170 knots or more. After takeoff, there would be a breath-stopping period whilst the aircraft accelerated when an engine failure might mean death. As a consequence, the pilots chosen to fly them were picked because of their handling skills and experience, They became an elite group. The control forces of the mozzie were light throughout the speed range, which made the chances of overstressing the airframe a distinct possibility. Coarse use of the elevators in a dive or when turning at high speed was forbidden, and heavy rudder use to achieve large yaw angles was also to be avoided. Landing was another area where careful handling was required. With flaps deployed, the aircraft became very tail-heavy, and it had a vicious power-on stall that would quickly develop into a spin. Eric Winkles-Brown flew the original carrier landing attempts, and he knew that getting the aircraft slow enough to land on the deck nearly 50 knots below its normal landing speed would be a problem. If we got too low and slow on the approach, he said, it was going to be a fatality. Hitler was furious to see the Mosquito flying unopposed over Berlin, being fruitlessly chased by several ME 109s and Focke-Wulf 190s. And Hermann Goering wasn't exactly a fan either. He famously said, It makes me furious when I see the mosquito. I turn green and yellow with envy. The British, who can afford aluminium better than we can, knock together a beautiful wooden aircraft that every piano factory over there is building. They have the geniuses and we have the nincompoops. Berlin was a frequent mosquito target for the airplane had the range to reach it and the heft to carry at first four 500 pounders and later as much as a two-ton blockbuster bomb and to do it at 35,000 feet. One famous three plane mosquito raid on Berlin in january nineteen forty-three was precisely time to arrive, just as Goering began an eleven AM radio address celebrating the Nazi Party's tenth anniversary. Sounds of confusion could be heard in the background, and the broadcast was rescheduled later in the day. At four o'clock that afternoon, more mosquitoes arrived again to interrupt the speech this time by Joseph Goebbels. Although the Mosquito flew thousands of routine bombing missions, it was also perfect for high-profile specialist raids, such as Operation Jericho against the Armens prison, which housed some 700 French resistance and political prisoners, 258 of which escaped after the walls were breached. The Oslo Raid, the Aarhus Raid and Operation Carthage were made against the Gestapo headquarters of Oslo, Copenhagen and Jutland respectively. All these audacious attacks involved ultra-low-level precision bombing for which the Mosquito was ideally suited. The mozzie often flew raids carrying the two-ton blockbuster bombs, and it was also modified to carry a pair of Barnes-Wallace's famous bouncing bombs called highballs. They were to be dropped against turpits and were designed to bounce over the torpedo nets, hit the side of the battleship, and slide down its flanks to explode below the waterline. Before they could be deployed, a Lancaster's dropping six-ton tallboys, another of Barnes-Wallace's inventions, did the job. The speed of the Mosquito also made it an ideal fighter to use against the V 1 flying bomb, whose ram air pulse jet engine buzzed its way over the channel towards London by the thousand. During a two month period alone, the Mozzie accounted for 600 doodlebugs. The largest gun ever mounted on the Mosquito was the 12 foot long Molins 57mm rapid fire cannon. The aircraft that received this modification were called the Tsetse, after the deadly African fly, and their speciality was sub-hunting in the Bay of Biscay. The bay was too shallow to allow the U-boats to submerge, so they had to dash across the surface. The Tsetse sank enough of them that they were forced to abandon daylight activities. The Tsetseys also destroyed more than a few Luftwaffe aircraft, as the effect of a single 57mm projectile was devastating. In common with the B-17 crews that I mentioned, the Mosquito Airmen pressed their attacks with no less bravery. One such pilot was Group Captain Leonard Cheshire, who flew many types, including the Mosquito, and was awarded the Victoria Cross. In his citations, several of his exploits were mentioned. This officer began his operational career in June 1940. Against strongly defended targets, he soon displayed the courage and determination of an exceptional leader. He was always ready to accept extra risks to ensure success. Over Cologne in 1940, a shell burst inside his aircraft blowing out one side and starting a fire. Undeterred, he went on to bomb his target. At the end of his first tour of operational duty in January 1941, he immediately volunteered for a second. Again, he pressed home his attacks with the utmost gallantry. Berlin, Bremen, Cologne, Duisburg, Essen and Kiel were among the heavily defended targets which he attacked. In October 1943, he undertook a fourth operational tour, relinquishing the rank of group captain at his own request so that he could again take part in operations. He immediately set to work as the pioneer of a new method of marking enemy targets involving very low flying. In June 1944, when marking a target in the harbour at La Havre in broad daylight and without cloud cover, He dived well below the range of the light batteries before releasing his marker bombs, and he came very near to being destroyed by the strong barrage which concentrated on him. While developing the target marking techniques of the Pathfinder Force, his citation went on to read that, Munich was selected at Wing Commander Cheshire's request because of the formidable nature of its light anti-aircraft and searchlight defenses. As he reached the target, flares were being released by our high-flying aircraft. He was illuminated from above and below. All guns within range opened fire on him. Diving to 700 feet, he dropped his markers with great precision and began to climb away. So blinding were the searchlights that he almost lost control. He then flew over the city at a 1,000 feet to assess the accuracy of his work and direct other aircraft. His own was badly hit by shell fragments, but he continued to fly over the target area until he was satisfied that he had done all in his power to ensure success. Eventually, when he set course for base, the task of disengaging himself from the defenses proved even more hazardous than the approach. For a full 12 minutes after leaving the target area, he was under withering fire, but he came through safely. In four years of fighting against the bitterest opposition, he has maintained a record of outstanding personal achievement, placing himself invariably in the forefront of the battle. What he did in the Munich operation was typical of the careful planning, brilliant execution, and contempt for danger, which has established for Wing Commander Cheshire a reputation second to none in bomber command. Cheshire's life is worthy of a plain tale all of its own as his accomplishments went on well after the war as did those of the Mosquito. Unlike the B-17, the Mozzie continued to be produced after the war ended and it was not until 1950 that the RAF finally replaced it with the jet-powered English electric Canberra. Nearly 5,000 were produced by de Havillands in the UK alone, but many more were made under license in Canada and Australia. Like the B-17, it was loved by those who learned to master it and who looked back on it with respect for its accomplishments. From May 1943 to May 1945, Mosquitoes took part in 26,936 sorties for only 106 losses and 88 aircraft damaged beyond repair. The Mosquito ended the war with the lowest loss rate of any aircraft in RAF Bomber Command service.